Great to hear you chattering as you come in about all kinds of things, but warms my heart to hear you talking about the terms and definitions as you're coming in. As I warned you, we will be having an activity based upon the terms and definitions that I handed out last week. No new handouts today. I figure I've given you enough to leave plenty of opportunity for discussion this week and next week. Don't need any new handouts. But we're going to uh, begin by checking homework, and Lori's here. It looks like she's going around and talking with uh, some of you. And so, are Lori going to uh, check homework at the table, or you going around? Okay, that's fine. Uh, you can do it however it works for you. Um, so have your homework ready to show and check as Lori comes around and does that with you. Yeah. We'll be having our vocabulary review game here in a little bit, uh, but while Lori's busy checking homework, let's talk about the discussion questions from chapters one and two. So if you want to pull out your Roman age and Middle Ages, and we're going to be looking at those outlines, and in particular, the questions. Each of them have three questions there at the end of the study guide. And I told you that in class today, you need to be prepared to discuss those questions. So I'm really enjoying uh, the lecture and the video, as well as reading the book on the ancient history and medieval history, to be able to see how ideas and history are so connected, that really it's ideas that are driving what happens in history. And I think Schaefer does a great job of helping us understand the flow of history. As he said, there's a, a flow to history that is following the current of the way people are thinking and thought is very important. So, let's take a look first at episode one with the Roman age. And while we're looking at the questions, feel free to look over the outline or look over any notes that you have. Uh, get out your answers to the questions that you wrote so you can refresh your memory. And I want to have some interaction. I want to have you giving your answer and, and others interacting with that answer. And I'll be throwing in some additional questions to get us thinking. So this is our opportunity not just to, to listen, but to talk. So be ready for that. So question number one. Dr. Schaefer claims that through looking at history, we can see how presuppositions determine events. Does his discussion bear this out? And if so... How? Now, a little hint here. Uh, when you know the study guide is asking whether or not the author has done a good job of connecting his, his thesis with his discussion, the answer they're looking for is probably yes. Right? <laughs> uh, but if you don't think so, that's fine. You can disagree and say, you know, I didn't see it or I don't think you did a good job uh, of connecting it. And, and that can lead to good discussion. So don't feel like you have to give the the yes answer that pats the author on the back. He's not here. He's in glory. So we can, we can talk about him frankly and don't have to worry about offending his, his uh, little heart. Um, so what do you think? Uh, did Dr. Schaefer do a good job of showing how presuppositions determine events in history based upon uh, not only the first chapter, but now that you have the second chapter, you might have some thoughts on that. Yeah. Yes. How so? You missed some points, but in order to condense all this information, he did a really great job of putting it all together in a 
easy to follow timeline for yeah. better quick absorption of data, especially for those of whom we came here who have already gone through ancient history and medieval history, and even American history. Right. So that you can follow a timeline and also know where it's headed based on where the history books say. Yeah, doesn't that get into a little bit of uh, the second question? How can a survey of Roman history in one half hour be either useful or responsible? So you're kind of getting getting on that and tying the first question together with the second one, you see? Uh, so sometimes it's useful to see the big picture so you can make sense of the, the little details. And that's uh, big picture is understood through the presuppositions. Uh, what's a presupposition? Somebody want to tell me the way that Francis Schaeffer is using the word presupposition? It's part of the question, right? Uh, how presuppositions determine events. So you need to know what he means by presupposition if you're going to have an intelligent answer to the question. Uh, <laughs> you kind of look like you wanted to say something about presupposition, Petra. Well, I don't know. Like, presupposition is like the pair of glasses you look through to, to determine uh -huh. how you see your surroundings. Good, yeah. Uh, so very similar to a worldview, right? Because mm -hmm. that's sometimes the definition you hear for worldview is it's your glasses by which you, you see the world. Uh, and so, yeah, your presuppositions make up your worldview. Because uh, why do presuppositions make up a worldview? Anybody want to give some clarity on that? Because presuppositions are like basic beliefs that you build off of. Like what? Like uh, where you think the origin of the universe came from. Good. Or, or not even man's evil. Uh-huh. Or not even in God. Yep. Yeah, so your presuppositions are what part of the worldview tree? Yeah, good. And where was theology on the worldview tree? Yeah, the roots, right? Uh, and what else uh, would be uh, making up your presuppositions on the worldview tree besides the theological roots? Uh, well, actually, uh, that would be more like the, what grows out of your presuppositions. Your science is basically your, your branches and stuff up top. But there's another part of the tree besides the branches and the roots. Uh, the philosophy. Yeah, and philosophy corresponds to what on the tree? Uh, the trunk. The trunk, right. Good. So you guys are tying together the, the worldview tree with the, the presuppositions here. And then that helps you to understand the question a little bit better. Uh, Dr. Schaefer claims that through looking at history... We can see how presuppositions determine events. Um, where's history on the worldview tree? Uh huh. Yeah, it's one of the branches. And uh, then you can get into all different kinds of history, like you said, American history, Roman history, medieval history, uh, Far East, Chinese history, um, Genghis Khan, all that. And so there's different, you know, branches on the, the history branch. Um, what would be the major branch that history branches off of? Uh, what, what's the, the bigger field of study that history is a part of? You go to the university and you're studying history, uh, what department is it in? History department, but yeah. <laughs> no, probably not the arts. Uh, well, there is a lot of art study in history as we see with Francis Schaeffer. Um, usually arts goes together with something, so you're on the right track. Uh, arts and what? 
Arts and Humanities. You ever heard that? Arts and Humanities? Uh, so the humanities is the study of humans. And one part of studying humans is studying their history, right? So you see how uh, knowledge is all connected and it branches off from other fields of study. And you have more general fields of study than you have more specific fields of study. Uh, what would be a very specific field of study in biology? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so zoology is more specific. What would be even more specific than zoology? Yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah, they actually have a name probably for you know the study of frogs and they use the Latin and all that. So they, they or maybe Greek. They use Greek for all the scientific stuff, right? So they have a uh, you know you study zoology and then you start to specialize. You're like, oh, I'm going to study in you know amphibian, uh, and then maybe you might even specialize in one particular kind of, of frog. And now you're the expert in the world on you know this <laughs> South African you know river frog or whatever. Um, so. You know, you, you start with the generalities and then you go out into the specifics. So, Dr. Schaefer claims that through looking at history, we can see how presuppositions determine events. Does his discussion bear this out? Um, so let's get more specific on this, on this question. In what ways did Dr. Schaefer show that the presuppositions of the Roman world uh, led to the, the history uh, that we have recorded of the Roman people? Okay, interesting. Uh, so, you think the Romans were kind of uh, selfish in their government, and that that could have been part of the fall of their civilization, is that they were mostly concerned about the concerns of Romans, and the concerns of non-Romans were kind of secondary? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. okay. So, that has to do with kind of like an ethnocentrism type of uh, problem. Yeah? Uh, one of their presuppositions would be like humanism, like man-centered. Yes. Um, and kind of like not ignoring God slash God's trilogy. Uh-huh. Um but like everything that their government and culture and military was based on was what they wanted, what like the people wanted. Yes, good. Uh what was your name? Levi. Levi. So I think you're on the right track here. Uh that, that idea of having your society based upon humanism is one of the main points that Schaefer is driving at here. Now, some people might object to Schaefer's point about humanism in the Roman Empire and say, no, uh, Dr. Schaefer, uh, you know, your analysis is, is wrong here because the Romans weren't humanists. Uh, they, they were pagans. They believed in many gods and they were very religious. You know, you can read in the Bible, uh, Paul goes to speak to the, the Greeks and Greco-Roman culture was pretty much tied together. And he goes to speak to the Greeks and he says, you know, I, I see that you are in every way very religious. And so these are religious people, not humanist people in the way that we think about it. So how does Dr. Schaefer uh, answer that? Uh, what does he say to prove that the Romans were humanist in the way that he's talking about it here from that philosophical perspective? Yeah. Uh, he talks about how the gods Yes. Um, and key, key phrase there. Yeah, that the gods were amplified humanity. I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, 
So if you go back and you read the stories of the, the Greek gods, and I did this uh, a year or two ago with my kids, we started reading Homer's Iliad. And it got a little repetitive and boring. We, we quit after a little while. But we read enough of Homer's Iliad to see what the character and nature of the gods was like. And Clarissa, what, what were the gods like in Homer's Iliad? fighting with one another, and some took the side of the Trojans, and some took the side of the Greeks, and they were, you know, plotting and scheming, and one god would do this, and then this other goddess would do that, and, and it was basically just, you know, what people do, uh, just that they're bigger, more powerful people, uh, kind of like the Avengers, right? So the Avengers are Earth's mightiest heroes, and, and one of them happens to be a, a god, right, from, from uh, another world. And so... Uh, they're, they're bigger, more powerful than us, but they still bicker with one another. They still have their political disagreements or ideological disagreements. You've got you know, kind of your pragmatist with Tony Stark, and then you've got your idealist with Captain America, and, and they have different ideas about how to help the world and solve the world's problems. And, and that's just amplified humanity, right? They're still just humans uh, in their nature and their core, and just stronger. And that's the way the Greek gods were. And so... It's interesting to see how there's kind of a revival of paganism, uh, polytheism, in our culture through comic books. Uh, comic books needed a mythology, they needed a worldview, they needed uh, you know, something that would be a, a, an interesting storytelling medium, but they didn't want to necessarily make Christian comic books, and so they had to come up with something, and they kind of fell back on the, the pagan idea of amplified humanity. And so once you start to see, down to the core, you start to see not just what it looks like on the surface, but you see what it is in its, in its heart, its essence, then you can start to make you know, good judgments like Schaefer is doing and showing how the, the humanism uh, of the ancient Romans is very similar to the humanism of today uh, at, their, at their most basic point, at their most fundamental point, even though they're different in some of their details and how you might see it if you just looked at the surface. You guys following me there? Um, so I think that in general, you all would say that Dr. Schaefer did show how presuppositions, our basic understanding of the world, human nature, uh, the nature of knowledge and existence, how all of that does lead to the history that plays out. And what was the history of, of the Roman Republic and Empire? Give me a, a basic overview of that. What, what happened in Rome over the hundreds of years of its existence? Yeah. Good, yeah. So yeah, the earliest stages where they've still got you know kind of the, the polis with the, the king, the ruler of the, the city-state, and then as they become a republic, they, they expand and their military strength conquers the world, and they are really good at governing people, um, but eventually they get back to kind of a totalitarian uh, emperor, monarch type of system, like in Star Wars, right? So it starts off with the republic, and then it goes to the emperor, and they get this you know, centralized rule, and he kind of takes control from the senators, and the Senate becomes less and less important, and, and all of that. So, you know, Lucas, uh, George Lucas, had that in mind when he was writing Star Wars, is that, well, we've got this, this historical example of, you know, republic democracy falling to uh, authoritarian uh, empire, so I'll just use that uh, for, you know, my, my space drama. Um, now, 
Francis Schaeffer said that it was kind of a deterioration to go from the Republic to the Empire, so he would agree with Lucas on that, right? And, and what were the presuppositions that led to that? Uh, why did the Republic fail, and why did Palpatine take over? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, uh, you know, that might be Palpatine's uh, answer. <laughs> we need stronger leadership, right? Yeah. Uh, lack, a change in belief in who was right and in charge, and a rejection of their previous leaders. Okay. So, some disagreement as to who should be in charge, and the, again, that kind of t falling on the failure of leadership, right? Um, but I don't know if that's what Francis Schaeffer was, was pinpointing. Can you think back to the, the book and think about Schaefer's argument in chapter one? What did Schaefer say was the reason why the, the Republic failed and you ended up with tyranny? Yeah? Yeah, so they weren't necessarily looking out for the common good, uh, but everybody was just, you know, using politics for their own advantage or the advantage of their group. Um, and why do people do that? Why do people uh, vote according to their own private interests and not according to what is good for everyone? What's the, what's the presupposition that causes people to do that? Anybody? We're self-centered. Well, that's, that's the, the human nature. Uh, that's, that's the problem of sin, but what is the presupposition, uh, what's the worldview uh, of people that causes them to act according to their own interest and not according to the interest of others? Yeah. Lack of faith. Lack of faith? Okay. Uh, in what sense? In the sense of like putting, putting yourself before others before the greater good. Um, so like in faith you're supposed to you know, lean on the Lord and not your own understanding. Uh -huh. When you lean on your own understanding, then you're going to fall into the trap of just thinking about yourself and not thinking about the people around you and what's good for you. Yes. So, when you have a, a humanistic uh, worldview where man is the measure of all things and you don't have a eternal transcendent God by which to establish values, then what is valuable is a matter of personal opinion. And my opinion about what's valuable is different from your opinion of what's valuable. And so we have different ideas about what we should value and what we should uphold and what we should vote for. And so then it becomes a matter of who can you know, convince enough other people or take enough control over the system to promote their own values. But the Republic of America or the Republic of Ancient Rome or any republic where the people are voting it only functions pr well when the people are virtuous. And virtue is uh, what's right and wrong, what's ethical, uh, what, is, what is universally true. Universal truths don't come from humanism. Uh, that universal truth comes from theism, particularly monotheism, not polytheism. Polytheism is basically just another form of humanism, uh, according to Schaefer's analysis. So, as... The Romans had no universal standard by which to judge right and wrong, 
every man did what was right in his own eyes. And because we're sinners, uh, what is right in our eyes is often twisted by our minds to what advantages me or my group. Right? That's what you're getting at? And so, because they, they were looking for ultimate meaning from people's ideas, but they weren't tying it to God's revelation, therefore they were, their worldview made them susceptible to this chaos. And then once the chaos of everyone arguing and fighting over what's best gets out of control and unlivable, then people ask for a dictator, a strong man. You know, remember when uh, uh, Anakin's talking with Padme, and he's like, you know, we just need a strong leader that's going to step in and, and do what's right and best for everyone so that, you know, we don't have all this squabbling among the senators. I think that was in episode two. And uh, she said, you know, that sounds like, you know, tyranny, uh, or whatever word she used. And so that's where tyranny comes in uh, because of all the chaos of the squabbling of, of not having determined universal values. And so you see that it was inevitable that the pressures of the squabbling would eventually lead to a strongman emperor leader and that you can only have republican government work when people have a universal standard by which to judge right and wrong that they can discuss and debate and come to an agreement on that is different from my personal interest. All right? I think that's kind of taking everything that you've said and, and pulling it together with Schaefer's chapters. I think he'd be pretty happy with that answer for question number one, don't you think? All right, so good. Thanks for working through that with me. Let's, let's talk about number, number two here. Everybody get a chance to show their homework? We're getting close. So we'll do uh, the first three questions here, and then we'll do our game, okay? Uh, question number two. Who wants to read that out loud for the group? Go ahead. How can a survey of Roman history in one half hour be either useful or responsible? Discuss. Alright, so he covered Roman history in like eight pages, and it wasn't all just Roman history. He was doing a lot of philosophical analysis. That doesn't seem very responsible, doesn't seem very useful to me. Uh, convince me otherwise. Yeah. Um, it's just important to learn about like, different histories, I guess. You know, even if it's just a brief summary of that history. So good. So he's not necessarily trying to help us understand the rise of the Republic or any of that, but he's more focused on what led to the, the fall of the Republic and the, the rise of authoritarian government and then the you know eventual destruction of the Empire. Yeah. Uh, I think it's useful in the sense of it gives us a backing um, for like where the Christian faith was um, in the Roman ages yeah. and then to see like what it's like now so we can learn from those mistakes um, and then maybe see the good things that came from that. Yeah. Um, use them now. And I think it's also responsible because we can use 
like, you know, and you could study an entire year or an entire, like, four years on the Roman history. Yep. Um, but it's responsible in the sense that we have other things to get to, other things to learn about that are maybe more important and more pertinent to us now. Very good. Excellent. Yes. Um, the study of Roman history, uh, you have, if you're, okay, let me, let me come at it from this angle, uh, like you guys are saying. Um, it would be irresponsible to have a half-hour survey of Roman history if the person who was, you were trusting to give the survey had not done uh, enough research to be able to, to give you the short version. Uh, years ago, I was uh, teaching a Bible study at UNL. And we just, you know, meet on a certain night in the week and invite everybody, put up posters around campus. And it's amazing how few people came. <laughs> um, but uh, one, of the, one of the nights there with my small group, I, I decided to give an overview of the book of Revelation. Now, some guys have, you know, studied the book of Revelation for years and they'll take, you know, six months or longer, uh, you know, lectures every week to go through the book of Revelation because... It's so complicated and it's difficult to understand. And, and so, if, you, if I had been misinformed uh, by others as to what the book of Revelation was about and how to properly understand it, well then, yeah, my you know, half an hour talk on the book of Revelation would, would be very useless, very unhelpful. Um, but if uh, what I was teaching was based upon the hundreds of hours of study that other people have done, and that those people who did that study had done so according to proper scholastic and uh, intellectual standards, and had done a good job of studying and teaching that. Well, it's all the work that is done on the front end that allows you to do the, the, the survey, the overview. So, there's... We're standing on the shoulders of giants here who have done the work, but you have to be careful that you're standing on the right shoulders. So that's where the responsibility comes in. That me, as your teacher, I've chosen Francis Schaeffer's book. And so I'm responsible for what Francis Schaeffer says because I've chosen to, to give it to you for you to learn from. And Francis Schaeffer is responsible for what's in his book. And so he's responsible for the research that he did, the people who helped him study the, the Roman period and art history and all of that. And so you see how it's all connected, one person uh, standing on the work of another person. And if the person before is bad, well, then the result's going to be bad. So you have to be careful who you listen to, especially when you're doing a survey where you're not having the, as much opportunity to be able to see exactly how these conclusions were come to, but you're kind of just being given the conclusion. So, I think that's an interesting question. How can a survey of Roman history in one half hour be either useful or responsible? Uh, it's only as useful or responsible as the people who put together the survey <laughs> and the work that they did in, in putting it together. And I think I have good reason to trust Dr. Schaefer, and I hope that I'm being responsible in what I'm teaching you from his book. All right, the third question here. Time moves along. History does not repeat itself. Uh, the parallels between the history of Rome and the 20th century West are many and obvious. How may these statements be reconciled? So we're trying to reconcile two statements. One, that history does not repeat itself. Two, that the parallels between Rome and uh, modern Western culture are many and obvious. Yeah? 
So good, so good. Um, have you guys heard that before? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Any, raise your hand if you've heard that. Yeah, I like it. It's a, it's a good statement. Um, because there are patterns that develop, and you can see repeated patterns in history, even though there's always going to be differences as well. So it takes a lot of discernment to be able to see the difference while also noting the parallels. And that's where confusion can enter in and bad teachers can mislead you uh, through trying to show the parallels without the contrast or confusing the contrast with the parallel. And so you, you, if you're going to be a critical thinker in the area of history, you can't just be a novice. You can't just say, well, I took one class with Timothy and Timothy said this. That doesn't make you an expert on history. Uh, hopefully you've got the right perspective, but that depends upon whether or not I've done my work in history, and that depends on the people that I've relied on and all of that. And so, if there's going to be actual debate between different historians as to what is the lessons that are to be learned from ancient Roman uh, culture and modern uh, Western culture, well, that debate's going to have to take place between the, the different worldviews, analyzing that, and a lot of it is coming, going to come down to, you know, what your worldview is. But then within the worldviews, there could even be good discussion and debate among people who are historians, who do that for their work, and who uh, have the right worldview and are working hard on it, and they can discuss and debate. And that's how knowledge moves forward. Discussion and debate between people who are virtuous and who have a correct worldview, uh, or you know, a close to correct worldview, because who really has you know, everything figured out. Yeah. I beg to differ. I'd say history does repeat itself. Uh -huh. I would say it's kind of like an experiment. You can mix the same chemicals together and have that experiment and yeah. then do the same thing again. Right. You're still repeating the uh, mixture of chemicals, but it's going to have slightly different alteration in the outcome. Good. I would say the same thing goes for when history repeats itself. Uh -huh. You have the same outcome when it comes to like the process through which people make their actions, uh -huh. even if it's not exactly the same, like not the same weapons, not uh -huh. the same ideologies, uh -huh. but yet the same outcome and the same starting point. Good. Yeah, I like getting some discussion going. We got some responses, yeah. So I think that just all depends on how you look at the word repeat itself, because um, I think it's definition it's like a replica. Um, so you can't necessarily look at like a Roman battle where they're using swords and bows and arrows. And then, you know, the Romans win, then you look at a war now, where if someone in Rome is fighting with someone else, um, they're probably not going to be using swords and bows and arrows or anything like that. So it's not necessarily like repeating itself, but it does have the parallels, like you said, in the question. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. So that's a, that's a, brings up a great subject that you always have to look at. What do you mean by repeat itself? And so you might interpret repeat itself differently than someone else might be interpreting it. Uh, more loosely or more strictly. Yeah. If I may, this, this does refer to further question in chapter two about uh -huh. the um, particulars universal discussion. Okay. That meaning of a word being different in other people's eyes. Which which word? Uh, 
like he said, the word repeat, it can mean different things to other uh -huh. people depending upon the way they see it. And how does that relate to the particulars and the universals? Because the particulars and universals makes it so there's a particular word, per se, that can be used as universal dependent on the discussion or um, relevance to whatever you're working on. Okay, yeah. Engine could mean something else in a human body versus vehicular. Uh -huh. Good. Yeah, I'm following you. I think I get what you're saying. Go ahead. As a response to Gus's question statement, yeah. I would say yes in the sense of like the weapons and all those small details. Uh -huh. Those things are different. They may be similar, but they do change over I'm talking more about like the overall, like for instance, strategies in battle. Like uh -huh. we used a lot of strategies in World War One that they used actually German more strategies uh -huh. in World War One from Rome. Yeah. Uh, and they ended up most of the battles that they used Roman strategies in, they ended up winning the same way Rome did. So mm -hmm. it may not be repeating itself on the like minute details of the weapons or the people used in it. Right. But it's Yeah, good. I think that is connecting with what you're talking about, the universals in particular. So you're talking more like the universals, the, the basic principles, they do repeat themselves through history in different instances of individuals. Yeah. Um, kind of just on to what you were saying, like there's nothing new under the sun. So like, uh -huh. good. Like yeah. what, what's out there is out there already. I like how you're bringing in scripture, uh, you know, Solomon's wisdom, and uh, connecting that with the discussion. And there we get into the subject of general revelation versus special revelation and how we uh, observe those. So a lot, of great, a lot of great stuff going on here. All right, we're going to take a pause in our discussion of the questions here. And we're going to move into our review game on the terms and definitions. Uh, where is Lori? Oh, there. Uh, so I'm going to let Lori take charge here. And what's going to happen is we're going to divide you into... Uh, girls and guys groups. The girls are going to compete against the girls, the guys are going to compete against guys. And so we'll divide you up smaller into teams. Uh, do you want girls or guys to go first, Lori? Okay. So all the girls go with Lori. You guys uh, stay here where you are and we're going to do a little terms and definition talk while the girls do the review game. All right. Uh, you can use any space that you need, Lori. You can use the stage, you can use the floor. That podium will travel. That's your choice. So you guys get a little bit of review time before uh, the game. Good to go second. You feeling very prepared? Not good. Go ahead and pull out your terms and definitions. You got like raise the eyebrow. A lot of sarcasm is lost on I had it a 
Alright, let me have your attention, guys. Uh, so, you got the terms and definitions in front of you? Alright, anybody need another one? You got one. I'll take another one. I'll leave this one over here. Uh, and... <laughs> I think we need to. Levi's out of the thing. That's where it's at. I asked him if he could crash it. He said yes. He said yes. I was just going to say, he was so we're going, going. Let's, let's crash. Come on. Just oh, to impress. We crash it. Yes. Look short. So, when it comes to definitions, guys, uh, definitions are descriptions of the way that the words are used. And that's why you have multiple definitions for words in dictionaries, because uh, words can be used in multiple ways. And so if a, a large enough number of people use a word a certain way, then they'll add that to the dictionary. Or if it stops getting used, they'll take it out of the dictionary. So definitions are not, uh, the people who write the definitions are not determining the meaning, uh, they're describing the meaning. And so it's helpful for us to be able to see how these words have been used. And when it comes to definitions, there's technical definitions, and then there's more uh, like vernacular or slang definitions. And so what I'm giving you here is mostly technical definitions because this is a class where we're looking at philosophy, history, and sociology, theology, and so these are specialized fields and so I'm giving you more than a technical definition. And that's helpful to be able to be in the discussion of history and philosophy and knowledge and, and all of that. Um, and anytime you want to get more involved with a particular field, you've got to learn the terminology. So we're starting off this year with that, and that's what the game is designed for, to help you get these terms down. Thanks. Um, so as I was looking over the list of terms here, there's a few that I've highlighted, but how about you? Are there, are there any terms that you had questions about or uh, anything that, that stood out that we could talk about? Yeah. I thought something that was interesting going through these uh -huh. is that the like dictionary form of a lot of these words all seem to really be the same word being used. Oh, like but that in the same of like the slang of these words. Uh -huh. Well, I have to look through the examples because I got distracted. I oh, saw them and I noted them down and then I was listening to Yeah. But like it seems weird that it would be something that on paper they're the same things, but then they're used from completely different viewpoints. Okay. So then they're like projected differently. Does that make sense? I'm not exactly following. No. Okay, let me find the example. I think what you're saying is um, making it so that the word follows whatever the person that's using it is saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Using it to their they're, they're like the similarities in the definition uh -huh. that if you read the two definitions side by side you couldn't tell me the difference. But then if I gave you the two words You'd be like, oh, this means this, and this means this. It's completely yeah. separate. Well, that'd be interesting then with the matching game, because where you'll have to try to match the word with the definition, and some of the definitions are sounding very similar, because they're in the same field of study, yeah. but there are some, some key differences between them, right? Because like, a lot of the words have to do with how do we know things, or what is the basis of knowledge. Um, yeah, science being another word for knowledge, right? Um, and then... But there's different uh, ways that people 
know things. And so there's different words that will describe those different ways. So they're related concepts, but they are distinct. And making those distinctions is the point of learning the terms and the definitions, right? Now, there's a key, few key words here that I want to point out to you. What's that? Um, what, how long uh, Yeah, you kind of have to see how they're doing. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a uh, And then, you know, if, one, if some of them are taking way long, you can say, well, you want to don't want to go on for I was talking about the terms. All right, any questions about the terms and definitions that you had before I, I jump into some particulars? There's a few that I'd like to highlight for you here at the beginning of the year. Well, do they mean the same thing or are they similar in meaning? Well, this goes back to the rhyming or repeating idea. Some of them rhyme. Just like history. Right, yeah. We're, we're thinking on the same lines there. Well, it would be more of the same thing. Because, like, for example, monism. Monism, yeah. Or monism. Or monism. There's just reality. Right? And then. I just saw it now. Here's our Oh, maybe that one's not on the paper. Maybe that's from my memory of last year. Right. I was thinking of one word that literally just meant that like, like the reality is all there is. Huh? And then, like, talk about naturalism. Naturalism. Thank you. That's what I was thinking. And so I was seeing those two, and I was thinking, like, that's pretty much the same thing. Good. Yeah. I think you're on the right track. All right. So, guys. Uh, one of the key words I want you to look at there is the word epistemology, right? So they're alphabetical, E starts uh, epistemology, you can find it on the first page. Um, someone read for us the definition of epistemology. Okay. A branch of philosophy that deals with knowing and the methods of obtaining knowledge. Alright, so now there's a word in there that is also defined uh, on, uh, in a, another one, and that is philosophy. So it can be useful uh, if there's a, a key word in the definition to see if there's a definition for that key word. And also, I know I'm asking a lot here, but might as well ask a lot and you might get more, right? Uh, you could even you know, use a dictionary that is outside of the terms and definitions I gave you to look up some of the, the definitions that are in the definitions, right? So it's like, uh, if you're looking at a, a definition that says, um, like, uh, well, we'll just stick with epistemology, the branch of philosophy. If philosophy wasn't on here, you could look at that one. Uh, but look at the definition of philosophy that is on the sheet. The study of seeking knowledge and wisdom and understanding the nature of the universe, man, ethics, art, love, purpose, etc. Uh, so epistemology is a branch of philosophy. Philosophy deals with seeking knowledge, but epistemology is the methods of obtaining knowledge. All right. So the method of obtaining knowledge is more foundational than the knowledge itself. 
in order to have knowledge, you have to have a method to obtain knowledge. So epistemology is a very foundational part of philosophy. As philosophy is seeking knowledge, epistemology is kind of like, how are we going to do it? So if you were uh, getting ready to, to learn how to be a farmer, uh, the first things that you want to know is, you know, what is a seed? Uh, what does it produce? Uh, what does a seed need? And just those, those basics about growing things. And that's kind of what epistemology is. Epistemology is the basics of philosophy. And therefore, it's very important. And what you'll find is that while a lot of people will spend time arguing about art or love, you know, love is love, and blah, 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 and they'll, they'll spend lots of time arguing about the, the positions of their philosophy, what they often fail to do is recognize is that they have different methods of gaining that knowledge. And so you can argue with people about your knowledge all day long, but if your method of gaining knowledge is different from their method of gaining knowledge, it's not surprising that you have a different understanding of love, right? Um, <clears throat> if you had one person who thought that seeds uh, grew without water, uh, and you had another farmer who said, no, seeds need water to grow, and they're arguing over whether or not they are going to water their, their, their plants, well, it's not going to be a very good argument until you convince the person that seeds need water. Uh, and that's kind of how it is with epistemology. I'm sure there's a much better way to explain it, but that's just kind of what I'm coming up off the cuff. So I just want you to get the idea that epistemology is, is very important, and I spent a lot of time talking about that in, in class. And it's, a, it's an idea that I really want you to, to know well, because you're not going to be able to understand um, different epistemologies until you understand what epistemology is. Like, look at the word empiricism. You guys see the word empiricism on there? Uh, somebody read for us the definition for empiricism. Yeah. The proposition that only one source of true knowledge is experience, search for knowledge through experience and observation, denial that knowledge can be obtained a prior Good. So, <clears throat> empiricism, how does that relate to epistemology? We're looking at those two definitions side by side. Uh, what's, what's the connection between them? Um, searching for knowledge. Uh-huh. Yeah. Searching for That's... Uh-huh. And uh, what does empiricism have to say about that? The proposition that there's only one source. Uh-huh. And what is that source? No, that's not, that's not what empiricists say. What do empiricists say? Experience. Uh, see how it says the, the only source of true knowledge is experience? Uh, oh, but yeah, okay. You're looking at the next one. Experiment observation. Good. Um, so we experience things, but we experience them uh, in a controlled way. Thank you. I, you're on the right track. I apologize. By experiment and observation. Um, now, Who that you know of uh, uses empiricism in their pursuit of knowledge? How would you describe someone who uses empiricism in their pursuit of knowledge? If I may, it's um, vastly used in the uh, worldview of modernism. Okay. Uh -huh. And uh, what do you call someone who is doing, uh, pursuing knowledge through observation and experiment? Or someone who's very yeah, a scientist, right? 
So a scientist is somebody who's pursuing knowledge through observation and experiment. And so the, the epistemology of the scientist is empiricism. Everybody say, the epistemology of the scientist is empiricism. The of the is the <coughs> okay. Now, if I'm not an empiricist, I can still, you know, use science. I can still do that. And but and you say, well, I'm a scientist, so I'm doing that. But when I'm when I'm saying the the scientist uh, you, is is an empiricist, that means that the scientist who only thinks that you know the only way we know things is through through science. Um, now, what other ways are there of knowing things besides science? Look at the definition. Can you get any clues in the definition of another way to know something besides observation and experimentation? Yeah, Lucas. Yeah, a priori. Uh, everybody say a priori. Yeah. Um, I could give, you know, uh, pronunciation guide to go along with this, because a lot of these terms are coming from uh, other languages. A priori, I think, is Latin. Yeah? So, the thing with the a priori that doesn't uh-huh. make sense is, like, the only thing that I can think of that is universally true, like, that no one will argue about, is that I think, therefore, I am. Okay. But uh-huh. would that be considered an a priori? Because that was still tested in a thought experiment. Well, no, it was the starting point that uh, Descartes used for his, for his philosophy because he needed a starting point, and he thought, like you said, it's a starting point that it seems obvious to everyone. Uh, so he, he needed an a priori. So, uh, okay, so what, what's being brought up here is rationalism. Uh, now, is rationalism on the list? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, when what's 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 rational? Branch of philosophy where truth is determined by reason. Okay, so you've got reason, you've got observation and experiment, or you've got a priori knowledge, and so philosophers will argue uh, over what is the right way of pursuing knowledge, and is there only one way or are there multiple ways? And the rationalist like Descartes, he recognizes that you need a starting point for reason. You can't reason from nothing. Uh, nothing comes from nothing. Uh, like, you've got to have a statement in which to, to do deduction uh, or induction. And so he needed a starting point, and his starting point was, I think, therefore I am, and that was an a priori uh, knowledge. It was knowledge that was true without verification or testing. Okay? Um, so you see, like you pointed out, there's connection between a lot of these terms and that's because we're dealing with the area of philosophy and the one key branch of philosophy I really want to focus on early on here, that's why we're talking about it, is the epistemology. The girls done? Yeah. How'd they do? They did. We had one team that finished and others were, you know, making uh-huh. it probably only about a third of the way through. And so we're working in pairs? And they were, but these guys will be in The threes. guys will have in groups of three. Okay. So you guys have a little advantage, right? <laughs> Girls, mix up your stuff in your area. Leave it, leave it just how it is. Don't move anything. You have been drafted, good sir. Only got it right, right? So let's go ahead and swap. You guys put your notes away. Okay.
So which group finished? We got a group of three? No. Uh, oh, no, no. You said, I thought you said how many? Which group finished? You two? Okay, very good. Uh, how long did it take you? I wanted the time. Uh, anyway. Um, well, good. Uh, and uh, how, how far did the rest of you get? Did you get about halfway? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So some of them were easier than others, huh? Um, I was just talking, talking with the guys about how there's so much overlap in these definitions because they're all a part of the same field of study, uh, philosophy or theology. And so a lot of the terms are very similar, interconnected. So go ahead and pull out your terms and definitions sheet. Let's talk about some of these. Yeah. If they're all going to be working on that side, yeah, that would help. That'd be helpful. So go ahead and pull out your terms and definitions. <laughs> oh, see, I thought that would be one of the easier ones, but everyone's different. Yeah. So you notice I've got some highlighted on my page because these are the ones that we've come across so far in uh, the reading for, for Schaefer. Um, so as we go throughout the year, there'll be certain ones that become more important at certain times. But I want to start off the year kind of focusing in on epistemology. Take a, take a look at uh, that one on your definition sheet. Epistemology. Starts with an E. Thankfully, these are alphabetized. Makes them easier to find. <laughs> uh, somebody want to read for us the definition of epistemology? Go ahead. Good. Now, I like reading definitions. I'm kind of a nerd that way. I, I really enjoy thinking through the meaning of words. And those guys are loud. You girls aren't this loud. 
<laughs> That's all right. There's more of them. We'll forgive them. Guys, guys might have louder voices. Um, so when you're reading a definition, you can... Thanks, Joe. When you're reading a definition, you can actually go deep on the definition by looking then at the definition of the words in the definition. Like, look at epistemology. One of the key words there is philosophy, right? The branch of philosophy. And so if epistemology is a branch of philosophy, well, then it might be useful to know what philosophy is, right? Um, and when it comes to words, words are used in multiple ways with multiple meanings. And so what I was telling the guys, I'll remind you also, is that there are technical definitions of words and there are slang or just common definitions of words. Like, what are some of the different ways that somebody could use the word philosophy? What would be like a slang use of the word philosophy or, or vernacular? The way you do something or like your opinion the way that something should be done. Yeah. Like, my philosophy of, of homeschool education, your mom might say. You know, it's just, this is my approach to it. Um, but is, when we're talking about a, a personal approach to, to doing something, that's not the definition that we have here, right? What's the, de what's the technical definition for philosophy? So in different contexts, the same word will mean different things, and so you've got to be able to pick up on, well, am I in the context of a philosophy classroom where we're talking about the nature of the universe and what is right and wrong, or am I you know, just talking with somebody uh, casually about how they think something is the best way to be done? Um, now, they're, of course, related ideas, but they are different uses of the word, and that's why when you actually open your dictionary and look up the term philosophy, there won't just be one definition. There'll be like three or four definitions. And it's not that one is right and the other is wrong. It's just that there are multiple definitions because words are used in multiple ways. Um, but I'm giving you more of the technical definitions here because here we're in the classroom and this is kind of a philosophy class. It's history. It's philosophy. It's theology. And so we're looking at more of the technical definitions of these words. And when you, you think through a technical definition, recognize this, that the dictionary is not determining the meaning of the word. The dictionary is describing the way that the word is used by those who are, in this case, the technical definition, those who are philosophers. So philosophers... They use the word all the time in their branch, and, and the dictionary describes what the philosophers mean when they say that word. And it's a, it's a generality. Are you going to find some philosophers who might be kind of weird and use words in their own way and make communication difficult? Yes. But generally, this is what philosophers mean when they talk about philosophy. Now, compare philosophy and epistemology. So what you can do is you can put the definition for philosophy in the definition for epistemology just by replacing the word with the definition. Right? So everybody look at the definition of epistemology and I'm going to read it, but I'm going to put the definition of philosophy in there. It says, epistemology is the branch of the study of seeking knowledge and wisdom in understanding the nature of the universe, man, ethics, art, love, and purpose. But this branch deals with knowing and the methods of obtaining knowledge. So you see that 
epistemology is a subset of philosophy. Philosophy deals with all of this stuff, but epistemology deals with one particular within all of that. But the, the one particular that epistemology deals with in philosophy is very foundational. Because the means of obtaining knowledge is very important for the study of knowledge, right? You can't study or seek knowledge without means. And so epistemology is, well, what means are we going to use to get knowledge? And how do we know what we know is actually true? And that idea of truth is very important in epistemology. Have you guys heard uh, people say, you know, you've got to live your truth? You ever heard that? You've got to live your truth. Um, so people will use the word truth to talk about what is meaningful to you or what is true for you in contradistinction to what is true for, for other people. And that's caused some people to talk about true truth. Um, if I say true truth, how, what do I mean by that in contradistinction to your truth or my truth? What is true truth? Universal, Universal truth, right? So there's the, the individual, this is my truth, versus what is universally true. And so epistemology will be a discussion over, well, what is personal truth? What is universal truth? How should we use personal truth? How should we understand personal truth? And how should that bear upon uh, everything else that we're studying, whether we're studying politics or whether we're studying history or whether we're studying the nature of what it means to be human or where the universe came from or what is good and what is, what is evil. Uh, to me, this is good. But what is universally true about what is good? Uh, to me, this is uh, beautiful. But what is universally true about what is beautiful? The study of aesthetics. And so epistemology is, is key for understanding why people come to different positions in philosophy. It's largely because they start with a different epistemology. That they have different beliefs about how we gain knowledge. And therefore, there's differences in what people think is true and what it means to be true. So you're going to hear the word epistemology a lot in the class, and that's why I want you to pay special attention to it here at the beginning of the class. Uh, now, as you look over the list there, any words that jump out for you that uh, we've already talked about or highlighted or that are going to be important in the, the early part of our class? See any words that you think are going to be important here in the opening weeks of our class from the reading already? Okay. Uh, and what's the definition of a priori? Knowledge, judgments, and principles which are true without verification or testing. It is universally true. Okay, so here you see the word knowledge again. And so that ties in with philosophy, which is the seeking of knowledge. And that ties in with epistemology, which is... How do we obtain knowledge, the methods of obtaining knowledge? And so a priori knowledge is what kind of knowledge? It's universally true, right? It's something that doesn't need to be verified or tested. And compare that with another definition, uh, just the one right above epistemology, empiricism. Uh, notice that uh, empiricism has the word a priori in its definition. 
So there's a connection here between those two definitions. Uh, Clarissa, read for us the definition of empiricism. A priori. Yep. So, empiricism is kind of the opposite of a priori. And empirical knowledge, then, is, is in some way counter to knowledge that is a priori. Um, can you give me an example of an uh, a priori statement? Give me a, something that is true without being verified or tested. Yeah. Okay, um, why, why is gravity true without being observed or tested? What's that? Uh-huh. Go ahead. How so? That's what you've heard? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So let's let's uh, talk about a priori knowledge. Uh, any any other examples you can think of uh, that would be an example of something that is true without being tested or verified? Well, you're observing cause and effect, right? So it would have to be something that is true without observation or testing, because that's empiricism when you're observing it and testing it. Um, do we observe gravity? Do we te do tests on gravity? Yeah. Uh, so that's not a priori knowledge. That's, that is, in fact, empirical knowledge. So give me something that would be a priori. Something that people know is true, but they don't know it from observation or experimentation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like what? Okay, so the statement, killing is evil, is that a true statement? Um, morally evil, right? So, murder is morally evil. Uh, is that a true statement? Is it true because we've run scientific experiments that have demonstrated that it's morally wrong? Can you observe that it's morally wrong? How do you know it's morally wrong? Yeah. Well, that's why Elise uh, said that uh, killing someone without uh, proper cause, and uh, we changed it to, to murder from killing, because murder has the definition of wrongfully taking someone's life. Um, so yes, I, I think this is a good example of a priori knowledge, that murder is wrong is a principle that is not known because of scientific experimentation or observation, but it's something that we just have innate. As the Bible says, it's written on the heart. The law of God is written on the heart. So a priori knowledge is an interesting kind of knowledge in contrast to empirical knowledge. And empiricism uh, versus like intuition would be the difference between a priori versus empiricism when you're talking about epistemological uh, point of view. Um, another key word here that I want to point out early on is uh, the word relativism. 
uh, find that there on your definition, relativism. Why is relativism a key word here in relationship to what Francis Schaeffer has been teaching us? Has Francis Schaeffer been talking about relativism at all? Uh, in, in what context has he brought up relativism? So the relativism, uh, the, the, the view that truth is relative and not absolute and that it varies from people to people, time to time, that led to the chaos in the Roman system because they didn't have an absolute standard by which to judge uh, moral truth, but they just had their own beliefs and their different cultures. And that when stress was put on their system, they didn't have a transcendental source of knowledge that would be able to, to keep things together and wouldn't crush under the weight of pressure and war. Um, so good. Uh, now, relativism is connected to another key word here early on in our discussion, that's humanism. So read for me the definition of humanism, a volunteer. Go ahead. Okay, um, so can anybody tell me what that says in your own words? Uh, restate it, because kind of kind of wordy, isn't it? Give it a try. Okay, good. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, so, people, humans, their reasons, actions, motives, uh, putting them first, as opposed to putting who or what first. Yeah, without the concern for the deity or the supernatural. Um, one of the ways that Francis Schaeffer has pointed this out is he said that humanists believe that man is the measure of all things. Have you, have you heard that in our class here and in, in your reading? Man is the measure of all things. Uh, so that is a, a way of stating a system of philosophy based upon human reason, actions, and motives without concern for deity and supernatural phenomena. And we'll, we'll talk more about that if we have... Oh, man, I can't believe we used up all of our time for the review game and discussion of terms and definitions. Uh, that's why I didn't give you any new handouts today, because I knew that uh, we've got plenty here to keep us busy uh, for a little while. Um, in the last couple minutes that we have, while the guys are finishing up over there, uh, any questions about the terms and definitions? You did the review game. You studied it. Yes, anthropologists have studied every society, and okay. everyone has agreed that theft and murder are uh, wrong. Wrong, in yeah. everyone's view. Right. Now, that doesn't mean there's a war. Now, in war, people do all kinds of unjust you know, killing and taking of property. But as far as when people are living together in peace, uh, every society has recognized that you can't take my things, and you can't take my life. Um, 
and they, they recognize that that's universally true. So that's like, so if somebody says that they believe that workers rights, then... They're just being perverse. Uh, they're just trying to be a troll. That's the word we use for it now. They're, they're, they're trolling you. Okay. <laughs> they're trying to get an argument going. But they so, know that it's wrong. So that's not relativism. Because that's not... Because that, they can say that that's their truth. Uh-huh. So that's not relativism? That's not relativism because they're lying. Um, uh, and... How, they, how do you know that they're lying? How do you know that they truly don't believe that that's Right. Well, you know, like like the psychopath or something like that, uh, who who kills and doesn't feel any remorse for it. Yeah. Um, it's not that there isn't such a thing as psychopaths who you know don't recognize that what they're doing is wrong. Um, but great, great questions. Um, what I would say is is that among people who are of you know goodwill seeking the truth and are you know in their right mind that's that's what we're talking about here um, are there going to be exceptions to, to everything yes there are going to be exceptions but the exception doesn't disprove the rule so good good questions definitely and that's that's what philosophy is designed to do is to get us to to question to think say well what about this and what about that and a lot of times people will, will use the questions to try to unsettle things that shouldn't be unsettled. And so while we want to encourage questions, we also want to encourage uh, morality and at the same time recognize there are certain things that you don't want to tear down uh, and you only tear them down if uh, you have overwhelming evidence that, that that is the right path and the right way. It's like uh, when you're taking down a building. Um, you have to do it the right way. You have to be careful. When you're renovating, uh, you don't take out the central pillar or the whole building's going to come down and, and crush you. Um, so in a similar way with ideas. There are foundational ideas that, yeah, it's fun to do the mental exercises on, but you realize how important they are. And, uh, well, I'm kind of rambling, so I'll shut up. Um, all right, so we're done. Let's see if the guys are ready to, to reconvene. I will uh, send out the homework. And I've got a couple of last-minute changes I might make to the homework, but basically it's going to be uh, moving on into the next chapter.